All right. Why don't you open to um, Matthew chapter 3, please. Matthew chapter 3. We left off as uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had returned from Egypt to the land of Israel to settle in um, Nazareth, which, by the way, was the very place that um, Joseph, Mary, um, when she was pregnant, that they were moved by God through a natural proclamation of the census that was to be taken, and they had to go down to Bethlehem, remember. And so, again, God is in control. As we see in the scriptures, he prophesies certain things, and then he brings those prophecies to pass. <clears throat> he does it in such a way that sometimes is confusing the people and they conclude that God forces things to happen and people have no choice, but that's not the case. The fact is that God knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that any person can do that it can thwart the purposes of God. You and I have a difficulty looking down the road and trying to figure out how is it I can get around this difficulty and all that. And we think we have it wired, and then we get down the road, and all of a sudden, oh, I didn't see this. Well, God knows everything. He can't learn anything. So when he declares something before it happens, when it happens, you know it's God. And yet, the absolute prophecy will come to pass, but the actors involved in the prophecy, if they are any, they will not be forced to do the good or the evil. God only knows the evil or the good that they would do and how they fit in. And so it's no big deal to God. That bothers man, but um, certainly it, it doesn't uh, for the Lord. And he takes his natural um, senses that is proclaimed, and he gets them down there. And as you know, she has the baby. And now they are back in Nazareth, where they first started. Now they've moved to Nazareth. You know, Nazareth doesn't have a very good reputation. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay? And, I mean, if you were God and you were going to send your son, I mean, California, probably send him Beverly Hills? I mean, somewhere where it's rich and wealthy and, you know, he's going to be taken care of. But not God. He allowed his son to become man, and he sent him uh, among the common people uh, in, in some of the lowliest places as Nazareth, up in the Galilee where the people in Jerusalem really looked down on the Galileans. You have the Decapolis up there, the ten cities of the Gentiles. Some of you have been to Israel with us, and when we stay over by Tiberias, that was the Gentile side. Okay, that's where the demoniac was in the gospel. And um, so... No one can ever say to Jesus, I, I, I just can't identify with you. Really? You, you, no one can ever say to Jesus, you, you don't know what it is to be a, 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 a accused of, your mother being accused of being immoral or the fact that my mother was immoral and had me out of wedlock. Because even though it wasn't true with him, that was a rumor. And they bore that all their life. Uh, no one could say to Jesus, you don't know what it is to have no money. He says, anybody have a coin so I can give the... Uh, the teaching on uh, paying taxes to Caesar. <laughs> the disciples of John said, hey, we want to follow you. He says, hey, the birds of the air have nests. 
foxes have holes, but the Son of Man nowhere to lay his head. Do you sure you want to follow me? So no one can ever say that to the Lord. He was tempted in every way as we are, the Scripture says, and yet without sin. And so there are many lies that are taught about Jesus. Uh, one of the greatest lies is as he went to Egypt and then came back, and of course being in Nazareth, is that um, he learned all these magical arts in Egypt, and that's how they explain the miracles that he does later on when he starts his ministry. It's blasphemous. Even like the quote-quote Passover plot that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, but he just fainted and his disciples stole his body and, you know, carried him off somewhere. These are things that people believe and teach today still. Amazing. And so uh, here in, in chapter 3, uh, this morning we went in depth. We won't belabor that. But in the first 12 verses, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist. We have it here. And in verse 1, it says, In those days, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so the time of the ministry of John, a very specific time in those uh, days, um, as we said this morning, there's, there's sometimes that we don't see the time that lapses in between. You've got about 30 years that lapses here um, in verse 1 from the previous one. Um, John and Jesus were born, as you know, six months apart. Luke one thirty six gives us that. And um, we don't have any information about John from his birth to the beginning of his ministry. Now, Luke gives us a lot earlier account of the, um, of the um, birth of Christ and Mary and Elizabeth from, uh, than any other one. But once that information is there, we don't have information about John the Baptist growing up. All of a sudden, here he is, just as we don't have information about Jesus um, after they came back from Nazareth, only one time he's found in the temple as he's dealing with the doctors of the law. And uh, his parents come back to try to find him because they can't seem to find him on their journey back from Jerusalem. And he says, did you not know I need to be about my father's business? And that's the last time we hear Mary, um, um, Joseph disappears after that. Uh, we still have Mary as we go through, even at the, uh, uh, at the tomb and then at also after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, Mary's there in the upper room. But there's a lot of information that we, um, we, we do not have and, and God has saw fit to not provide it. It's just not necessary. Um, again, once again, you look at the record of Genesis and you look at the first... Um, two chapters of the creation. That's all God wanted to give us. He could have given us 4,000 chapters. 
Oh, and on the atom and all this and the electron, the protons and all the different moleculars, all that, but, but he didn't. He, he just gave us the information that uh, was necessary for us. And um, once again, since uh, Jesus and John were both the same age, then we have to conclude, even though we start here and we don't see uh, Jesus till we move on the text, that both of them are in the same age, six months difference, okay? Um, John is described as the Baptist again because of what he's doing. He's baptizing both Jew and Gentiles. And as we said this morning, this was not a practice um, uh, that was placed upon the Jew unless there was uh, Gentiles being proselyting into Judaism, but the Jews um, uh, were not. And here he's, he, his message is that He's not only baptizing, but he's baptizing after the fact of the message of repentance. This is the message that today is lacking so much, as we said this morning. And again, this is the preaching, the preaching of the gospel. Caruso, that messenger, the one that proclaims, the one that has the authority, the one that, that, that the people respond to. And yet, that message is not his. The authority is not his. It's given to him. And yet he's not responsible for the people's response. He's just responsible to make the proclamation. And that's all he's responsible for. This is John, the messenger. Location in the Judean wilderness, um, uh, south of Jerusalem, um, west of the uh, Jordan River, uh, north of the Dead Sea, that whole area. And um, John is the voice, as we're going to see, Crying in the wilderness, 400 years of silence is broken. The simple and serious message was repent, to change your mind, to literally about face, seeing oneself as being separate from God because of sin, because sin is like a chasm between man and God. Until we get that, the sin problem out of the way, then we have no contact or relationship to God. The vertical axis comes through repentance and confessing your sin and realizing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is not mentioned here at this point, but John the Baptist is going to be pointing to Messiah as we move on. He is the key to all this. He is the forerunner of, of the Messiah. Um, repentance is characterized by acknowledging your sin, confessing your sin, and abandoning your sin. And if you can, at any time, make restitution. Now, restitution is kind of a tricky little thing because sometimes you can try to make restitution with, with a right heart, but it's really not very wise to do it because of past things and people. So you want to make sure that you are honorable and that you are wise in what you do. Very important. But certainly you're to acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, and abandon your sin. And therefore, you're a new creature. All things pass away. Everything becomes new. And so the urgency is marked by the reason given. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the rule of God on the earth promised to Israel to bring in judgment and set up the kingdom. That's what the kingdom of heaven means. Um, 32 times Matthew uses it. It's unique of him. No other gospel has it. He's unique. You'll find about five times the uh, kingdom of God in Matthew, but the kingdom of God is much broader than the kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of God includes the angels, everything else. Now, the uh, church is part of the kingdom, but is not the kingdom. The church will not bring in the kingdom, but he'll come back with Jesus who will set up the kingdom. The kingdom is present and yet to come. The kingdom of God's in the midst of you. The kingdom of heaven's in the midst of you, he said. And so it's very important, okay? So there's a lot of preaching, as I said this morning, about kingdom theology. And you have some very popular preachers and teachers that just everything they preach is kingdom living, kingdom this, kingdom that. Uh, this started in the mid-'80s um, in a big movement. Um, uh, Promise Keepers kind of comes alongside that. If you remember Promise Keepers, some of you guys that are older. <laughs> um, and you're going to take back territory and, and, and you're going to just, you know, set up the kingdom. And, you know, you're going to get politicians into, um, uh, Christians into politics. You're gonna, we're going to take back a little piece at a time and we're finally going to set up the kingdom. Where do they get this? The parables of the, uh, of, the, of the kingdom that are found in Matthew 13 on, the kingdom parables. They teach just the opposite, that the world's going to get worse and worse, and Jesus sets up the kingdom, not the church. The church is part of the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom, and the church will never bring in the kingdom. Jesus does. And so we need to have uh, right theology um, the prophecy here in verse um, 3 is being fulfilled by the ministry of John he's quoting the Septuagint as we said this morning the prophet Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 the voice um, broke the silence of 400 years Jesus said all did prophesy until John the Baptist in Matthew eleven thirteen. so the canon closed with Malachi, and we realize the 400 years, but all did prophesy till John the Baptist. Jesus says that the least of you is greater than John. He's the greatest of the prophets. And yet, he never did one miracle. Different measure that we have that Jesus has, right? We think that, you know, one who's doing miracles and signs and all this stuff, and there's a whole movement of signs and wonder with the, um, the late John Wimber of the vineyards and all that. And, it, it, and again, it's this, this almost hyper-Pentecostalism that comes upon it. You know, Pastor Chuck came out of denominations and out of the Pentecostal movement. And it seems that um, many of the Calvaries now are going back into denominations and into hyper-Calvinism, not hyper-Calvinism, but hyper-Pentecostalism. And uh, it's amazing to me. Um, you know, rather than just teaching the Word of God and allowing the text to speak for itself, and you get biblical theology rather than systematic theology or denominational theology, you know, but you judge everything by the Word of God. So, verse 4, he says, Now John himself was clothed with camel's hair, with the leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So here the lifestyle of John is, is much like Elijah, the prophetic one now. The prophecy is after uh, Isaiah, um, chapter 40, verse 3 there. Uh, in the context of all that is uh, the judgment of the nation, Isaiah chapter 1 to 35. And then you have the historical condition of that nation from chapter 36 to 39. Then you have the redemption through the Messiah from chapter 40 to 66. Isaiah is an incredible book. If you remember as we went through it. And so here the lifestyle of John 
was also like Elijah. His dress was camel's hair, coarse, rough, uh, the dress of a prophet. We see his description of that, um, the Tishbite in Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Also, Zechariah 13, 4 gives the dress of the prophet like that. Um, Jesus identifies John as the partial fulfillment of Elijah uh, as you move on in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and also Luke 1, 17. And so, John came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. That was the short-term prophecy. The long-term prophecy is that Elijah will come for the tribulation period. Jesus said in Matthew there 11, he says, uh, uh, surely he came. If you can accept it, he was John the ba- I mean, John, Elijah. Who? John the Baptist. So you have the short-term, the long-term fulfillment. His food... Locusts, grasshoppers, if you want some of those, you can go to the fair. They have cockroaches, grasshoppers, all that. You can eat them there. Um, Some believe that maybe the um, locust here is a a carob fruit. Um, I give you both. Um, Certainly Leviticus 11.22 provided the, uh, um, the lawfulness of eating certain grasshoppers. It describes different things, and certainly they're... That permission is given. And again, he, he's a very country kind of guy. He's just out there. Um, remember that John was of the priestly family, right? And he never got to officiate his uh, priestly role in any way. God called him out and made him a prophet, put him out there in the wilderness, um, kind of like uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was of the priestly um, uh, order, but he never got to officiate. He was called to be a prophet among the people there in uh, Babylon. But God took him through a virtual reality tour through the temple, if you remember. Now, in verse 5 and 6, the people came out to John. He says, Then Jerusalem, all uh, Judea, and all the regions around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he, had many of the, uh, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath of to come. So here in, in, in verse 5, the Jews from Jerusalem all around the region, um, these are the Jewish section. Um, again, for John to be baptizing Jews was awkward, so he was calling attention because he didn't do that. Again, just the proselytes. Um, those who repented were baptized in verse 6 simply because they believed the message, they confessed their sins. And they were looking to the one who was coming to forgive their sins. Every Jew understood the law if they were serious. Everything in the law pointed to the Messiah, to the true Lamb of God to come. And um, here when he confronts um, the religious rulers in verse 7, as they come out to him, he confronts them. Um, Certainly they did not believe. The Pharisees were the separatists, the ritualists, the... um, Hypocrites. Um, the, the term is found a hundred times in the New Testament. The Sadducees were the rationalists, the um, um, ones who didn't believe in spirits, angels, the resurrection, or eternal punishment. They were the materialists. They were the wealthy priests. So here you have a, an unequally yoke with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are so contrary to one another, and yet they form the Sanhedrin, the Jewish... Supreme Court, if you will. 
Amazing. The Sadducees appear 14 times in the New Testament. They were the wealthy priests, I said. There was another group also, the Essenes, and they're a third group, a ascetic group that lived down in the, in the Dead Sea area too. Um, they are, um, are, are responsible for many of the uh, parchments that uh, uh, were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and many others that are there. Um, there's also another group called the Ibionites that were a set group down there, and many of them have separated themselves from uh, much of the law and the religious things in Jerusalem down there in the Dead Sea. Um, here in verse 7, um, he just calls them brood of vipers, offspring of snakes. Um, the idea of snakes fleeing from desert fire, who was uh, warned you to flee from the wrath to come, the judgment of God. Um, now, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9 says that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Um, and yet, he's preaching the gospel. So those that repent and receive the gospel, the wrath of God no longer abides on an individual, but they have been justified in Christ Jesus, Romans 5, 1 and 2. And they have been made new, new creatures, uh, a new heart, a new nature is given to them. All their sins have been placed as far as east as the west, uh, buried in the deepest ocean. And uh, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, but those who hear and do not, Jesus gave very stern warnings to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to uh, Tyre and Sodom, uh, Sidon to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, uh, that all the privilege they had with having him present, doing the miracles, preaching. And he gave very, very stern warnings. In verse 8 through 10, we have the call to uh, repent to these religious rulers. He says, Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from uh, these stones. And then in verse 9 it says, And do not think to say, um, I'm sorry, verse 10, And even now the axe is laid uh, to the root of the tree. Therefore every tree which does not bear fruit, uh, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, um, John understands these guys. You know, John grew up with these guys. John was of the priestly family, as I said. So he had knowledge that others didn't have, even though it wasn't any hidden thing of the hypocrisy of these individuals and all that. But he, he understood who they were. And yet, it, it's very clear here that as he calls them out in verse 8, a life of godliness would give evidence of fruit of true repentance. If you're coming out, then there must be some worthy means weight, evenness of weight. You know, when, you, when, you, when there wasn't the electronic um, uh, weights and measures, you have the balance scales, you know, and you put a, a, a weight of a pound here, then you put a pound of wheat or whatever, and it balances out, you know, you have a pound right it's simple 
And, and what he was saying is, if you if you say you're a Christian, then your life should be balanced by that statement. This should equal this. And that's what he's telling them. It wasn't through religiosity. It wasn't through their weirdness and even their um, total contradiction to what the Bible taught. But they, they had to repent. And their national heritage could not save them, as verse 9 says. They felt their affiliation and association with Abraham entitled them. I think you understand a little bit about entitlement in the generation that we're living right now. It's like you owe it to me. You know what I mean? Uh, people even go as far as to say what people need to do is give their houses up to other people. White people should give them uh, to the black people, stuff like that. People say some weird stuff. Go to work. Whether you're white, black, pink, or whatever it is. You like a car? Go work. You like a house? Go work. It's this entitlement you owe me. Nobody owes us anything. Nothing at all. And yet these religious men were like this. They felt because of their long ancestry and how they came out of captivity and the synagogue and, and the scribes and all the Pharisees that separated themselves to the law. And, but, but it's weird when, when everything begins well, then as time moves on, things get tweaked and things get corrupted. This can happen in an individual. This can happen to a family. This can happen to pastors, to elders, to churches, to movements, to denominations. You know why? Because they're made up of men, people. And if you don't stay on track, on target with the standard of God's word, you will get off. And pretty soon what you pay homage to is the person, their long affiliation, who they knew, their position they have or had, and you bow to the golden calf. I've been around 44 years in the Calvaries. I've seen it in the Calvaries now since Chuck is dead, even before he died. So we're no different. But those who will keep their eyes on the Lord and continue to teach the word of God and depend upon God and not bow to the golden calf, God's going to take care of them. It's real simple. God raises up the church. Nobody has any control over any church. Now in denominations they do, but not us. God began this church from three people. God is added. God is taken away. God continues to direct and guide. And when he's done with us, he's done with us. But nobody else will say anything or has anything to say here. Nothing at all. And so that's the easiest way to do ministry. But again, it's in teaching the word of God to the people of God so they can understand the will of God and the ways of God. So that this way you don't look to us as the super spiritual guys and that everything has to come from us to you. No, we want to teach you how to feed yourself so your ear can be tuned to God, your hands can be doing the service of God, and your feet can be walking in the ways of God. Just like the high priest, they would anoint his ear, his right thumb, and his big toe. To hear the voice of God, to do the work of God, and to walk in the ways of God. And that's your responsibility, individual. That's my responsibility. And when we understand that simplicity of ministry and our relationship to God, God takes care of the rest. Very, very important. 
Notice um, verse 10, the warning about the spiritual perils that they, uh, if they did not um, repent, um, the, um, the acts is the judgment of, by God to the root, the source of life. He's not talking about pruning. He's talking about these guys who hear it and know it, but they don't repent. Ultimately, whether it's while they're alive or they die, then God's judgment comes at the root. It's final judgment. They have rejected the gospel. Every tree and person that doesn't repent would suffer the judgment of God. Cut down and thrown into the fire. This context is not refinement. This context is judgment. Okay, so the context is always important. Um, Jesus will cut every tree down that is not bearing fruit and cast it into everlasting fires. And so, in verse 11, he says, here now he distinguishes himself from Jesus the Messiah. He says, I indeed baptize you with water and re- unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John was baptizing with an outward ritual unto repentance, pointing them to the Messiah that was coming. He was the forerunner. He was in preparation of him. Jesus, the one coming after John, was mightier baptizing in the reality of the Holy Spirit to transform the believer constantly through a life of sanctification. Ephesians 5.18 says, Keep on keeping on being filled with the Spirit of God, an ongoing, present, continuous, adorative tense. You know, it'd be nice to be able to gas up your car just once time when you buy it, and that's it, right? But, but you can't. You've got to gas it up every once in a while, right? And so the same thing. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a leak in our body and the Holy Spirit leaks out. It's not what it's talking about. It's that we have to continually depend on Him to give us the strength to be able to live the life of Christ, that we don't trust in the arm of flesh, that we don't trust ourselves, that we're not trusting in gimmicks or experience or everything else, but that we always come as children asking, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. And again, it's not an emotional thing. It's not uh, an experiential thing. It's a step of faith. Even as when we were born again, we believed the gospel that if we admitted we were sinners and if we call upon Jesus to forgive us, then we can ask him to forgive us and he would do so. That's faith. For faith to be biblical, it must point you back to the revelation of God. Now the same thing with walking in the spirit so you don't fulfill lust of the flesh. The spirit and the flesh are contrary one to the other. And you cannot do that which you would. And so we are to be continually being filled with the Spirit of God, depending on God, so that it is He who is living in us and through us, so that He gets the glory. And so that the hardest things in our life become capable of being reality. And the easiest things that we try without the Spirit of God become the most impossible things. Because the flesh cannot accomplish the life of the Spirit. We have to trust the Lord for that on whatever level that might be. And so um, John makes the distinction here between himself and the Messiah. Um, John says that he was not worthy 
Again, the humility of John. Remember, they're cousins. He's six months older, but he, um, he had respect for Jesus. Um, and at this point, John really doesn't know who Jesus is. In other words, he doesn't know he's Messiah. Okay? By his own words, we'll see that. And John said, I must increase, or I must decrease, and Jesus must increase. That was his philosophy. That's a good philosophy. Look at verse 12. He says, um, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The judge to separate the believer from the unbeliever is Jesus here. This is the judgment between the wheat and the shaft. Jesus will separate that. He'll speak about it in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. John speaks about it continually, chapter 5 of John. Matthew interprets for us the fire, the final judgment of God. The metaphors of threshing wheat. They would get up on a high ground where there was plenty of wind, a flat area large enough to throw the wheat up after you've crushed it and uh, separated the shaft from the wheat and you throw it up and the wind would drive away the shaft, the husk, and the wheat would come down. Um, the husk here is the unbeliever who hears the gospel but rejects it. The judgment, the wrath of God falls upon them in the final judgment. And then the believer is the wheat, the one who receives the gospel, repents of their sins, depends upon God and glorifies him all the days of their life. We're not talking about sinlessness. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a real person living and walking, depending on God, having God increase, deal with his heart, ministering unto them, and being in fellowship with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ by grace through faith and not living the life that they used to live. That's the greatest evidence. You can judge your own life whether you truly have been born again or whether you truly are depending on him or not. You are the first to know. You will not be the last to know. (laughs) You're the first to know. You live with you. You live with your thoughts. You live with the intent of your heart. So do I. And that's why we depend on the Lord. So the Spirit of God is the first one that checks us and we obey. And we respond and we bring our thoughts in captivity and we check our heart and we cry out to God, help me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, just help me to die to self. And you cry out to God. So I don't have any problem with people having difficulties in the, in the walk in their life. That's welcome to the club. It's, it, it's a person who does not even care about trying. And they think they can live any which way they want and that grace is going to cover them. Not so. Not at all. And so here Jesus again, um, the final judge. When you get to verses 13 um, down to 17, you have the baptism of Jesus. Um, He says, And Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed it. Let me stop there at 15. 
the coming of Jesus, notice verse 13 to John. He came from the north, way up in Galilee. Some of you again been in Israel with us. It's a little ride down the coast. And um, he's coming from Nazareth, most likely right now. He hasn't begun his ministry. Later on, he made Capernaum the center of his ministry. But um, once again, it wasn't the nicest part, the nicest town. And it was in the area of the Galilee and of the Gentiles, that upper portion. Um, the journey was with the purpose and intent to come to John at the Jordan, purposely the river, uh, in the Judean wilderness to be baptized. Now, this was not coincidence. This wasn't a merely friendly visit that Jesus was um, um, coming to John. But this was a prophetic appointment. Once again, God declares things before it happens. God sets things in order. And yet, John the Baptist certainly was no robot. John the Baptist had a free will. Um, but he fits in the plan of God. And his cousin is coming down. But there's certain things that he has no idea about at this point. Again, we don't have much information it's even ludicrous, as we're going to see here, uh, at the very words of John. And by the way, the event is so important that all three synoptic gospels record this. And then John also records it four times. Mark 1, 9 through 11, Luke three twenty one and 22, and John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. This is very critical. This is the uh, inaugurating of the ministry of Jesus as he comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, the objection of John to baptize Jesus is given. John tries to prevent, the word means to hinder or stop Jesus. Now, you remember another guy that tried that? Peter... James and John and all the, the dirty dozen, they're up in Caesarea Philippi by Mount Hermon. They're at the foot, one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. And they're there in Caesarea Philippi where all the pagan gods are. And in that cave, the god Pan, that we get pantheism from, is believed to have been born. And uh, Jesus says, uh, who do men say that I am? It says, uh, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, because John the Baptist then was dead already. And... Uh, and then he says, but some say you're that prophet. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, um, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed thou art, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my father which is in heaven. And I say upon this, Petra, your name is Petros, small stone. Upon this Petra, gigantic stone, that I'm the son of the living God, I will build my church. It's not on Peter. It's upon the fact that he is a son of the living God. And then just the next thing, Jesus says, by the way, guys, because from Caesarea Philippi, from that confession, Jesus always mentions his death and his resurrection together. He said, by the way, I'm going down to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over to religious rulers. Peter says, over my dead body. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You do not 
discern the things of God from the things of man. One thousand a second, Peter just got a revelation directly from God. And I'm sure when he says, and when, when Jesus told before all of them, you are Peter, oh, you, you know, I'm sure Peter's looking to all that up, and yeah, I got it. Then the next thing he's calling him Satan. It will take you a thousand of a second to go from the spirit to the flesh. It's a done deal. There's a danger with us. That's why we have to judge everything by the word of God. You cannot depend on your reasoning, your logic. A lot of the theology that's going on today in the church with the emergent church is all rational, it's all emotional, it's all extra biblical. It's contrary to the scripture. It's redefining the church, redefining the Christian, redefining ministry. Redefining the church. They don't call it the church. It's campus one, campus two, campus three. Really. My Bible doesn't say, I will build my campus. God added daily to the campus. Who should be saved? The word is ecclesia. We call that once. Why would I call it a campus when the church has called it a church for 2,000 years? It's ridiculous. There are some people who are educated beyond their intelligence. Um, they think they're smart, but they're really not. So here again, um, verse 15. Or let me, let, let me give you first the words of John. Um, he tries to prevent him here. And they were cousins. But John said in John chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, listen, he says, I did not know him, speaking of Jesus, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, the Father. God the Father sent him, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John 1, 31 to 33. John did not know. The message to him was, this is the sign that you're going to know who the Messiah is. Now, in my human rationale, because I'm so smart, I say, well, hey, you know, Elizabeth, Mary, they're relatives. She went with her. She was with her in her last three months. She was probably present when John the Baptist was born. Are you telling me these two ladies never told these guys about anything? Apparently not. Because John didn't know. Now, are you going to believe your little pea brain or are you going to believe the scriptures? Perfect example of human rationale. If that bugs you, Put it in a question, put it in your pocket, and when you get to heaven, pull it out and ask Jesus. But believe the scripture, what it says. It's important. Verse 15, the command of Jesus to John permitted. So now, the word permit means to send away what? His objection. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness for the preparation of what? 
the justification of sinners. This is the inaugural uh, step for Jesus Christ. He goes into the water identifying himself as a sinner with sinners. He had no sin in himself. But he's identifying himself as the last Adam. He came just as the first Adam, identical. He's called the last Adam. He's called the second man, but the last Adam. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you stand in the first Adam, dead in trespasses and sins, unsaved, lost, headed for hell. The good news is you don't have to go to hell. Jesus died for your sins. You can call upon him and he can forgive you and redeem you and make you a child of God. So as he's coming to the baptism, he's identifying with sinners as the last Adam. He's identifying with death at the same time. Baptism is a symbolic of death going down into the water, coming up in the newness of life. And he's identifying as that high priest, the one who's going to be the go-between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is a very important act that's going on, recorded in all four Gospels, every one of them. And so, as Jesus comes out to his cousin, now he knows. As he's going to dunk him in the water, <clears throat> as he's going to come up, all of a sudden he's going to get the confirmation, which comes in verse 16 and 17. <clears throat> he says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so you can imagine, try to put yourself in that position of John, who is the cousin of Jesus. Once again, we don't have information of how close they were, whether they ever talked, spent time together, none of that stuff. But we have to conclude that it really didn't happen to an extent because of what we've just read about John's very words. Now, here it's not that Jesus received the Holy Spirit for the first time. For... He had the Holy Spirit as the last Adam. God does not give him the Spirit by measure, John 3.34 says. He is fully God. At the same time, he is fully man. And yet, being fully God and fully man, he could take the hold of the hand of man and the hand of God. And when he died as the Lamb of God, his blood joined us to God. The atonement for our sins. I have given you the blood upon the altar and the horns of the altar, the Old Testament says, as an atonement to cover your sins. It was prophetic of Jesus Christ. Peter says we're not redeemed with, after the traditions of our parents, silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that blood um, carries all the oxygen and nutrients to all your body. You, you lose your blood, you're dead. 
you can't live. And God made that token back in chapter 3 of Genesis 21 when he killed that first little animal. And he took the token of blood as the token for atonement. Now, ladies, you are a walking altar. When you reach puberty and you begin your cycle, once a month, if you do not fertilize that egg, that egg has to be atoned for because it has potential for life. How is it that it's eliminated? Through blood. God atones for every egg in your body that never is fertilized once a month. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. This is a token that he's chosen. Nobody's blood will do. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. Once again, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. The voice of God, the Father, in verse 17, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Goes back to Psalm 2, verse 7, as he says to the Son, speaks to him. The Old Testament says, and what is the name of his son? Interesting. Isaiah 42.1 speaks about the son. Isaiah 9 speaks about unto us a child is born. The son is given. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in should not perish but have everlasting life. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and God was the Word. Literally, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1. And then verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. Paul the Apostle, writing to the Philippians, he said in chapter 2, verse 5, on down, he says, let the mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus, who didn't take it robbery to be equal with God, but he took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. And therefore, a name has been given to him above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is born. The word being in verse 5 is what's called an antecedental condition. It means that he was God before he came, he was God when he was here, and he was God when he left, and he's still God. But more than God, you have a man sitting at the right hand of the Father, the God man making intercession for you. Once Jesus comes back for us, he's going to come back in a real body, glorified body, like you're going to have. Once we go through the thousand year reign and everything, then at the end, the whole thing's going to go up in flames, uh, that Second Peter tells us, and then we'll have the new heaven, new earth, and then God will be all in all. It'll be completely different. God still exists, one, three persons, but you have the God man right now making intercession for you. If you only had God, you wouldn't have anything. If you only had a man out there, you couldn't do it. You have to have the God-man. Jesus said, which of you convicts me of sin? No one said, I do. Nobody at all. A faithful high priest. That's why we can come before the throne of grace in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. 
And so you have the Trinity here. The Son is in the water. He comes out. The Spirit descends upon him in the voice of the Father. My Son in whom I am well pleased. The Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. Hear him. My Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Over and over and over again. And so you have all three persons of the Godhead involved in the plan of redemption. God is um, um, the source, if you will. Uh, The Son is the channel, and the Holy Spirit is the agent. When you read the Scripture, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between, as he talking about the Father and the Son, and sometimes the grammar structure will clear that up for us, and the article will be including both nouns, but sometimes it's, it's hard to distinguish them. Um, but either way, they each have their place for the work of redemption. And um, we do not teach that there are three gods. There is one God in three persons. Even as you and I are an inferior trinity, we are creating the image and likeness of God. I've never introduced myself to anybody. This is Xavier's body, this is Xavier's soul, and this is Xavier's spirit. Yet I am an inferior trinity. This body is going to go down to the ground when I die. They're going to take me. They're going to put me in a little oven. And I'm going to go up in smokes. Okay? My spirit is going to go instantly present before the Lord. All right? My soul is my intellect, my emotions, and my will. They will be intact as a spirit being in a way that will be far different from here. And when Jesus comes back for the church and the rapture, then we will all receive our glorified bodies. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Jesus will descend from the heavens with the shout with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain, listen, will be caught up with them. Who's the them? The cadavers. As we go up and they come down, they're glorified. We will be changed if we're alive going up. The cadavers will go up with us and they'll meet their spirits that are in heaven coming down. All right? You're never found naked. You're instantly present before the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. The rapture brings the glorified body to every believer. And we go before the beaming seat of Christ. And so, um, this is just temporal. Uh, The older you get, I don't know where you're at, but go home and get a tape measure and pull it out. And see if there's more tape behind you than before you. As you move through life, you're going to find out that the more people are in heaven that you knew than they are here now. So you know you're getting close. When you first start out, you go to weddings and baby showers and parties and that. And after a while, all you do is go see people in the hospital and you go to funerals. And, and, and it tells you where you're at in your life. And so you make the best of your life. You, um, you need to prioritize your life. Uh, redeeming the time for the day is evil and truly 
as we're living and we're seeing all the different things. Um, the days um, have not gotten better. Technology has grown and different things of advancement, but the heart of man, the uh, morality of man, the, uh, the ethics of man, um, man's um, desire for God, none of that has, has grown. It has decreased. It's grown in complete opposition to anything good. And so we need to stay in the word and prayer and fellowship and be used of the Lord and um, be a light. It's a dark world out there. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would just deal with our hearts. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for just um, this building. We thank you for just the comfortable seats, everything we have, Lord. We just pray that you continue to minister to us and we just look to you, trust you, and depend upon you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you are over the Internet, if you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can be saved. With the heart one believes, with the mouth confession is made. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You have heard the gospel tonight without any, any doubt. Very, very clear. Now you have to make a choice that will determine where you spend eternity if you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to hell, but you have all the right to go to hell. God will not force you to go to heaven. You have to decide where you want to spend eternity. And it's all going to depend on what you believe about Jesus Christ. If what you believe about him is in agreement with what the word of God says about him, then you are in good, good company. But if you contradict it, then you are in very bad company. So if you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus is the only one who can forgive you because he died for you in your place and rose from the dead, then you can repent even as John says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We are 2,000 years closer than when John proclaimed that message. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.